Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about competition. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. So once again, House Democrats from the Texas legislature have fled the state in an effort to block another round of Texas Republicans' effort to pass voter suppression bills by denying them a quorum. The voter suppression bills at the center of this drama would prohibit voting practices that are mostly used in Democratic-controlled counties and would seek to majorly limit voting by mail. The Texas House voted to arrest any Democrat that returns to the state and hold them in the legislature to pass these voter suppression bills. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said that Democrats should be losing their jobs and has threatened to withhold legislative pay in the past. Torrance Terrell, these Texas Democrats are essentially using their escape to continue to put pressure on the Senate Democrats to kill the filibuster and pass the For the People Act. So my question to both of you is, do you think this kind of pressure will work? Terrell, let's start with you. <laughs> Why me? No, it won't. Um, short, sweet to the point. Who's going to flip because Texas is deciding to do all of this? Cinema? No. Um, Mansion? No. Um, <clears throat> I do think it's... I do think it's very hilarious and hypocritical, however that when Texas was actually going through a crisis and a different member of the legislative body flew to Cancun, it was social media that forced him to come back and do something, not the governor of the state. But I digress on that. Clearly, there's just rampant voter fraud in Texas, and Abbott has to do something about it. (laughs) Your jokes are unwanted. We do not want them. We do not want them. My but they were on point. So, That's all that matters. I don't think by any means that like this is going to affect, say, cinema or Mansion's vote on, say, the filibuster. But it underscores again what I've continued to say about like my frustrations with cinema and and Mansion, specifically to the point of voter restrictions and voting rights, because those this this bill that is going through the Texas state legislature is 100% partisan. Mm-hmm. They it has been passed along party lines in both chambers. They they have again along party lines not passed any amendments offered by the Democratic um, members of that legislature. So their hands were tied. Now Manchin has specifically said in terms of not like this filibuster specifically, but in terms of things like voting rights and in why he won't like he won't vote for like a one time suspension of the filibuster for the sake of voting rights has been because he does not believe that we should make those kinds of decisions along party lines I that agree. that was was his justification for mm-hmm. saying that however he is allowing like i said with the cinema thing it is a denial or a dismissal of the reality of what is happening in states across the country that are antithetical to the exact thing that he just said, right? These are being passed in along party lines in state legislatures, huge bills that are about voting rights. But he doesn't want to do anything at the federal level. Like, it, like again, it just I'm not saying that it's going to change anything. I'm just saying, how is it not frustrating to, to, to more people that the reasoning that they use is just not flush with the reality of what's going on across the country you say it's antithetical but is it not proving his exact point right your argument here is the voting in texas is being done along party lines there are clearly people who are frustrated an entire party is leaving because they feel their voices aren't being heard 
is that not his whole point of he doesn't support what's happening in Texas either? I think you're conflating that a little bit. He's saying the reason he doesn't want something this major that's going to put the federal government in every state's local election is because it needs to be a true countrywide political shift type thing. And Texas is a demonstration of that, right? But again, a dismissal of what's happening. He can have that principled stance, right? Mm-hmm. But principled stances are bullshit if the other if the other side isn't going to uh, like operate under the same rules. Like it's it's again it's just to the point that like okay keep your principled stance and allow voting restriction laws across the country to just sweep across the nation, allow for people's access to the ballot to be put into jeopardy, and quite frankly, to that point, put our democracy in jeopardy. That's fine. Let's all keep our principled stance and let's let's just allow our democracy to go flush down the toilet. That's fine. Cool. Let's do nothing about it. I appreciate you looking for a rebuttal. But, and I mean, we can get into it. We have this voting conversation all the time, right? Um, I do think that a lot's being conflated in here of have your principal stance, but blah, 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 blah. I'm just done acting like the other side is a good faith, like a good faith negotiator when it comes to these things. They they are, have one mission to suppress the vote. That's and they fair. have very yep. much shown that to be the case across the country in hundreds of bills that are being introduced in state legislatures. They have yes. they have shown you their cards. They have told you who they are, and he continues not to believe them. That's my frustration. It's not that like I'm arguing like one point or the other. I'm just saying like it's it's hugely frustrating. Yes, and, I, and I don't know I what else to that. say. I agree with that. I just I think it's important to recognize though his principal stance and the, the reason that. These two specific senators, although there's rumors that there are more, aren't actively looking to just get rid of the filibuster, right, is because these things have those broader implications. The same thing can happen in the next term because there's a solid chance the Democrats will not hold on to the Senate come 2022. All they have to do is reverse that bill immediately. There are still some safeguards and some pieces there where we're seeing in Texas, we saw it in um, Wisconsin, we've seen it in Georgia. When one party just dominates, it tends to create negative impacts on our democracy versus, yeah, you might not believe that the Republican Party is going to come to the table and they have it, but there's still this hope or this buildup or this space of a democracy is supposed to be by the people for the people. If more people are seeing that if people like us are having this kind of conversation, the that then should entail voting changes things of that nature but i just don't think that we can continue to treat treat this like we're all having the same conversation because we're not we're not all having the same conversation about voting rights one of us is actively working against them and the other one is saying i believe in democracy i believe in a in a principled government and so because of that that deep belief this is the position i'm taking whereas the other side says fuck your beliefs Fuck your principled government, and just like the and just like the article that we were all talking about this weekend via text about, we needed a reality check. Well, oh, they are using right. the rules to their advantage and using them quite well, and we are doing nothing to stop them, and they are doing nothing to hide it. So, what do we do? Pack up our bags and go home and say that's it. The American experiment's done. Because you say like you know we we aren't going to keep the Senate and we may, we may not keep the House, and that's and that's true. We'll probably keep the House. But what's certainly true? Is that if all of these voter restriction bills pass, that's definitely true that we will not get any of we will not win the house. If we if we if they allow them to gerrymander, if we allow them to make access to the ballot box much more difficult, we're all but sign sealing, sign stealing and delivering our loss. We are not like 
this is not some biased approach. People should have access to the ballot box. End of story. I completely agree. <clears throat> and we shouldn't be criminalizing people for accidentally like submitting a, a written affidavit. No, no, no. Like someone who, who someone who the the voter in Texas who is oh I know who, what you voted on parole. Yeah, and is now facing five years in prison because because he technically couldn't vote and and not and here's the the worst thing the bullshit racist shit about it because this is a black man who served many years in prison. It always is that it's not his county. It's not his local government that's suing him. It's another county. Mm-hmm. Another county. What? Not the county he voted in and not the county he lived in. Another county. And it's being taken up by Attorney General Paxton in Texas. So, like, it it's bullshit. It's bullshit. And, I mean, I know that we could talk all day about it. I'm just saying. At some point, we can't keep acting like we're all playing the same game here. I mean, yeah. And I, I think important to that is I don't think anyone really is. I don't think Manchin is saying that the Republicans are playing fair, right? He's just saying he doesn't want to stoop to their level. In the immortal words of Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high. Do I stand by that? No. When we when they go low, I go to hell. That's how it is. <laughs> but I do think something something to that think was good. about. I'll give you the credit. That was oh, a good one. Um, something to think about here and something to be conscious of is Voting in America has never been easy, even though it should be. We're a democracy. We say that all people are created equal, all that bullshit. Um, I do think that there's something to be thoughtful of here, right? Georgia had some of the most restrictive laws um, 2016 into 2020, and Stacey Abrams stood up and fought against it, gave people access. Now they're trying to change the laws again, but they still can't outrightly stop people from voting without it literally being unconstitutional and we'll deal with whatever the Supreme Court does. So yes, the argument is they could. But I do think there's reason and space and 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 thought to speak of where, yeah, the other side isn't playing fairly. But if we keep demonstrating, if we keep fighting, if we keep moving forward, that makes more of an impact than simply changing the filibuster, pushing something through, and hoping for the best down the road. I want to challenge you for one second, Terrell, before we move on. And that is just because in Georgia and a lot of other places, some of the scariest voter suppression tactics and bills that they are passing right now are ones that take power away from election officials. Yep. Secretary of State and election officials in the counties. Mm -hmm. So if they don't like a result, the legislator could say this result isn't valid. And while that doesn't stop you from going to vote, does your vote actually count if they do something like that? That's how our system was actually created to begin with. Secretary of State wasn't actually the person who made the decision of elections. It was normally the legislature. And Kentucky is a great example because if someone leaves office, they still have this policy. The governor half the time chose who was going to be a senator and the legislator just said, yep, we agree or we don't agree. So I'm just saying, again, historical perspective Yes, I see where you guys are coming from, and I I agree that we have threats to our democracy. However, these are practices that we've had for years. They aren't new. They're just being focused on now because we have reason to say, well, we've seen the other side. Why why are we going there? 
I'm just saying. Because here's the thing. If we live in this world where, yeah, well, you know, we've always had states' powers and federal powers, and so states have this right to do this, right? And they get to run their own election. Yeah, that's how it happened with slavery and Jim Crow, too. So maybe we learn from the lessons of the past and say that's bullshit because it's repeating itself. But just for food for thought. Last piece. Last piece. Also on this. One of He's the big things the last that word, don't you worry, guys. <laughs> the last word with Terrell. I mean, Torrance can take it after because I'm sure he's going to have a response. <laughs> but one of the big things that has been sparked by this that a lot of Republican states, red states, whatever you want to call them, have noticed is in the Constitution and the laws that um, the federal government is using for the For the People Act, they do have a restriction, broadly speaking, from legal um, practices that they only have the ability to mandate and enforce federal elections when it comes down to local elections, which the For the People Act does invest in and suggests and says states should do X, Y, and Z and we'll give you money for it. Um, the federal government doesn't have that authority. So yes, I, again, agree and recognize in the um, federal system and blah, 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 blah. But those are important facts to recognize of the system we work in has always been inherently cracked and flawed and fucked up for all that matters meh it is a good reminder too that the for the people act doesn't like fix everything either no absolutely it doesn't because perfection doesn't exist yeah but improvement does doing better should to bring it back to another lovely controversial topic, <laughs> in an article from Greg Cree at CNN, it was reported that just as President Biden did in June, he once again this week hosted local leaders to discuss the nationwide rise in violent crime. This time, however, President Biden urged these leaders to use money they received in the COVID-19 relief package to fund a number of new public policy measures. Among those in attendance on Monday at the White House, Eric Adams, the projected Democratic nominee to become the next mayor of New York City and darling of moderate des- moderates, desperate to divorce the party's brand from defund the police that took flight in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder by a police officer in Minneapolis. Adams, a retired captain in the New York Police Department, pinned much of his successful mayoral primary campaign on a pledge to restore public safety in a city that, like so many others around the country, has seen more than a year of rising violent crime and shootings. He was also a willing foil to the, quote, defund crowd, which he largely dismissed as disconnected and privileged, promising stepped-up policing and the return of a controversial, plain-clothes NYPD anti-crime unit. In the end, Adams' message resonated in many of the hardest-hit neighborhoods. Two days after the election, holding a narrow but solid lead, Adams stepped out and declared himself the, quote, face of the new Democratic Party, and warned that, that candidates who ignored his example risked not only their own fates, but the party's congressional majority next year. Terrell, Caleb, the article does go on to discuss the differing beliefs among the different wings of the Democratic Party about how we should approach policy on crime, policing, and gun violence. What do you think Adams' win in the Democratic primary for the NYC mayoral race says about the shift in views within the party regarding these things since last summer amidst the calls for defund the police? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Um, Obviously, we always look at New York City. I don't know if it's I, I can never tell if, if New York City mayoral races are as important as like media gives attention to. But I will say this, Adams Adams's messaging around, he was a police officer. Um, I believe he worked up to be a captain. Mm-hmm. And he, in the campaign, really messaged himself as, look, like, I believe in the police. I was there, but I was there because I saw problems with it. And I wanted to, I also want to fix those problems. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what his messaging was really about. And 
I mean, I think it's no secret that the defund the police message is not a good message um, across the U.S. I don't think it is. No, so, no, no, it's not. It's not. It, it's I mean, more, to an extent, it's not. I won't want to make a blanket statement. I'll make the blanket statement. As I'm I, I think I think I will too because I don't. I think what is something something that like kind of frustrates me is that some of the um very far left voices somehow drive the decision making of a lot of voters who see democrats as that one message when that's not really the case at all mm-hmm. and adams found a way to to kind of drown that out granted new york city is a very democratic city but his messaging seemed to work um so i think it i don't think mm-hmm. we should say okay, we need to copy his messaging. But but if that worked and the um, someone who won a special election, I believe in New Mexico not that long ago, had similar messaging, maybe there's a trend here to learn from. I disagree. Uh, <laughs> shock, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. The only reason New York is at the centerfold of anyone's life is because it's a news hub. The New York Times reported everything that was happening in the mayoral campaign while AP didn't even pick it up as a relevant message. <clears throat> I mean, that makes sense. It is the New York Times. Also important to recognize here is context. Um, New York City is coming off of two terms of Mayor Bill de Blasio. Very leftist, very socialistic practices. And the people of New York didn't see as much return on investment as they had hoped when they elected him to be mayor the first time. And then he won a slim majority the second time. So when you start putting in context... You're not surprised with the outcome as much, even though I know our news media outlets and different circles are trying to blow this up, and specifically Adam saying, here's the new Democratic Party. This isn't the new Democratic Party. His win doesn't matter. And if he's hearing this, sorry, not sorry. Oh, I definitely agree <clears throat> with that. Um, I also yeah, think it's think important. he's just a, a part of the old Democratic Party. Yeah. And I think it's important, too, to recognize that it wasn't like it was him running against one socialistic person he ran against a very diverse broad idealistic group of mayoral candidates some of which shouldn't have been in there at andrew yang and some that probably would have had a really great chance had other candidates not ran so for him to come out and have a chip on his shoulder just goes to show one that he's a new yorker but two oh boy yeah (laughs) but two that there is this sense, especially after the um, last election, that the Democrats need to have a better messaging or have a better understanding. And I do think he's right about certain things. The defund the police campaign did not go well for the party, but his election is not a sign that he has the right message. It's just a reflection of where New York inherently was already headed. And yeah, and here's the thing. I mean, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I The, the man rubs me wrong. <laughs> He really does. He rubs me Insane. wrong. Um, he but he's a black he man. How can he rub you wrong? He's and a black bullshit, Democrat. Right? And that's precisely the bullshit what? I'm about to get to. Because they're like, <laughs> like that's where like I think that New York, right? This like liberal, this very liberal city who was right at the at the epicenter of a lot of the movements last summer, is that like 
they took like, okay, well, we do have a crime problem, right? But we have this black man who obviously is in tune with that issue, who is also a police captain, who is also a liberal, who knows how to talk about these things. So I feel like obviously like he was going to do well. But mm-hmm. here's my issue. This is a guy who has defended uh, the stop and frisk policy, has discussed the, the, the possibility of re-implementing that, right? He is for a plain clothes crime unit in, my, in, in New York City. And he says, quote, that the idea of people who are for, quote, defund the police are, that is a privileged and disconnected opinion, right? I think coming out here, brashly saying you are the new face of the Democratic Party, that's privileged and that's Perhaps. disconnected. Sir. I will give you that. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that, like, because, yes, do I think that we have to find a very nuanced and middle road uh, way of talking about crime and policing? Because it's not one or the other, because I don't subscribe to that belief, right? That it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. But quite frankly, the idea that he just kind of ignores the plight of people who, in, in, in especially in small towns around this country, right, where, where as a black person, you are constantly targeted by the police in, in your community and are treated differently by, in your community, that he has to understand that what he experienced in New York City as a black man on the police force is not what everyone is experiencing in these Midwestern towns and cities across the country. But in, in addition to that, this man is walking out here saying things and and, and and posing himself as the future of the party, having one on the slimmest of margins in one of the most safe democratic uh, cities in the entire country. And he hasn't even gotten to the general election yet. Yep. So the, the, the idea- win. We all know he's going to win. Yeah, no, and, and, he will, and he will win, right? But to make it seem like he just, he just formed this huge ass broad coalition, there was less than a million voters that voted in the primary. I mean, get over yourself. And so not that I don't real. think that he has something yeah. to say, not yeah. that I don't think that he has like points to offer to the conversation specifically around crime and policing, because I really, really, really appreciate that he makes a specific, um, he talks specifically about the rise in handgun crime, right? Which mm-hmm. is more prevalent amongst minority communities in urban areas, which I think that we do have to have a targeted approach to. But to make some blanket statement, like you're the future of the party, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And I mean, that's how I feel about Eric Adams. <laughs> I echo it all. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Also, only white people use AK 47. So, yeah. It, it's not that untrue. It's not. <laughs> it's not. When we talk like, about gun reform and everyone's like, oh, get the AKs off, they're really not talking about black people. Hence the reason it's so hard for us to get rid of the AK 47s. All our right. I was like, I know a lot of people, like, obviously, I'm, you know, live in the Midwest who have guns, black and white. And, yeah. um, I don't know any black person Only... who's militarized as some of my white Caucasian friends. Right, but I know a bunch of my white cousins, uncles, <laughs> my grandpa who have AR-15s. And my my grandpa is 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 a liberal, you know, white man, you know, blue collar white man, but he has an AR-15. Let's see what's happening around the globe. Political uncertainty continues in Haiti following the assassination of President Jovenel Moniz on July seventh, with an interim prime minister currently leading the state. Haiti officials are asking the United States to intervene and aid in the stabilization of the nation. His wife, Martine, remains in critical condition at a hospital in Miami. The story continues to develop as authorities identify a Haitian businessman who lives in Florida as a key um, player in the attack, also highlighting several other um, Floridians who served in levels of the U.S. government. Heartbreaking news out of England following the Euro loss to Italy on Sunday. Per the Associated Press, British police have opened an investigation into the abuse of three black players for the team. Marcus Rashford, Jordan Sancho, 
and Bukayo Saka have been the victims of heinous social media attacks following missed penalty kicks in the Euro Cup shootout. A mural of Rashford on the wall of a cafe in South Manchester was also defaced with graffiti in the wake of the match. Normally, I wouldn't ask questions when we go through um, the global side of things, but we've talked a lot about England. We've talked a lot about the royal family. There have been some calls for Prince William after everything that Meghan Merkel said and his absolute silence, but now he's apparently an ally to the cause. Um, So I just want to get some of y'all's quick takes. Oh, yeah. Let me jump right into this warm (laughs) water, okay? So... Two things, two things. You know I love calling out the bullshit hypocrisy that is uh, often white men. But so two two things. At the beginning of the Euro um, 2020 tournament, or 2021, excuse me, uh, that they, the England, the English players, both men, um, players of color and white, kneeled for um, mm-hmm. the anthem. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, the prime minister, uh, Boris Johnson, said that this was gesture, quote, gesture politics, right? And that he, when he, when he didn't support them, he said it was gesture politics and his actions will speak for what he believes in, correct? Mm-hmm. Basically, sliding them for kneeling for the anthem. Then this happens and he gets up and he says he is disgusted by these actions and says, quote, he wishes that that person will go under the back under the rock that they slithered from. Which is great, right? Which is great, mm-hmm. right? But one of the players called him out on Twitter and said, you don't get to basically condemn and call what we did kneeling, gesture politics, and then come and say you are disgusted and that you support us after criticizing us for the very thing that we were that, that they were protesting against, racism. So it's like all this empty political bullshit coming from Boris Johnson. So for, for Prince William to then issue a tweet condemning the actions against these players by 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 you know people on twitter and and fans of the team is real rich from a man who couldn't utter a fucking word about the overwhelming amount of racism that was being targeted towards his sister-in-law and the relationship of his brother and his and his new wife and then and then and then new nephew right couldn't utter a freaking word get again with the explicit today get the fuck out of here that's ridiculous that's absolutely ridiculous you you have the courage to say something now about a soccer game but not about your own family Okay, it's real rich. Real Caleb. rich, William. Caleb, I know you watched them, so what's some of your reaction? I mean, I echo everything Torrent said. Uh, my take will be more on the game itself. I First of all, the Euro was a lot of fun to watch this mm-hmm. year. I enjoyed it, and nearly every team at some point in the tournament, I don't. it wasn't for the anthem. I, I'm sure the English team did it for the anthem, but um, almost every team, when the ref blew the whistle, kneeled for five, 10 seconds before they actually started playing the game as kind of symbolism for ending racism, you know, all that stuff, which is great. I think it was great. Um, English fans got in trouble because they booed almost every time. And uh, uh, Gareth Southgate, who was the English um, coach, like pleaded with the fans not to boo when they did it in the Euro final. And they didn't, but I mean, it just, was the sh- they were like one of the only fan bases that was booing about it in the whole Euro, which is yikes. But um, I feel so bad for those three young players. They are so young. In England, if anybody follows soccer, England has had the worst luck with, with penalty kicks ever. 
ever. <laughs> like, like it's a known thing. It's yep. just if you if you follow the English team, your heart is bound to be broken. And it's there's some weird stat like you have to be over 65 years of age in England to remember them ever winning a major tournament. The last time it happened was 1966. And since then they have lost in PKs, although they've never lost in PKs in a major tournament final until, until. last week. <laughs> so damn, but, but what happened was, was the coach Gareth Southgate, you know, he's trying to be tactical and stuff. And I honestly think he does a pretty good job, but but he added two players, and mm-hmm. and two of these players were the ones that were that took um, some of the last penalty kicks, like in the last minute of extra time. They were barely on the field before the whistle was called for PKs. Yeah, and in practice, I one hundred percent believe that these players are probably just mashing it out of the park when they practice these PKs. Mm-hmm. But when you're in that stadium, in that moment, in that moment, it's so much different than that kind of practice. It's so much different. And PKs aren't necessarily random, but there's just so many things that can go different and awry when, when you're in that kind of environment. And honestly, I'm from the perspective that Italy deserved that win. They have been the best team of the tournament, in my opinion, by far. But I watched the three like youngest players of the team miss three penalty kicks in a row. Yeah. And you know England is just going to tear them apart, even though they do not deserve it. It's not their fault. The whole team got themselves to penalty kicks when they scored the first goal in the first two minutes. Mm-hmm. It's completely the whole team's fault. Yeah. Not the two subs that came on in the last 30 seconds of the game. Or the, even the other person. I Also, the goalie could have blocked one of at least PKs. I do remember seeing one that he did block a good one he did block a good yep. one but i do also remember there was one that he leaned for um and pretty much told the goalie which way he was going to go and it was kind of all over from there because the goalie kicked it straight down the middle he jumped to his right i do believe anyway yeah no their pks are so stressful and i hate them but it, it really sucks because the blame gets kind of miscast every time there's yeah. penalty kicks and it's like, well, why didn't your team win before you got there? That's really the big question you should always ask, I think, whenever teams get to penalty kicks. Um, that's my long-winded response to this. I feel absolutely terrible, and unfortunately, I'm not too surprised that this kind of stuff is happening because that's kind of what England has been for the last few years, at least. Yeah, we started from somewhere. Um, also, I, I would be remiss not to say there's been so much conversation about white culture and and appropriation and pieces and areas of that nature. And while people of color are continuously attacked for rioting or their responses to certain situations, every time I see a white team win, their cars flipped over, there's defacing of property, and I don't hear the same kind of call out and attack. And I do think that's relevant to this conversation. Lastly, following the unrest in Ethiopia's um, Tigray region, From Reuters, the U.S. condemns retaliatory attacks against civilians. The conflict has displaced roughly 2 million and forced nearly 400,000 into famine. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told reporters that the United States review into whether to call the events in the region crimes against humanity, war crimes, or genocide is still ongoing. All right, we'll be right back.
And we're back. Unlike our normal legislative lowdown, when Congress isn't working, I guess the executive branch likes to go it alone. The Biden administration is looking to the top of the bleachers right now as the jobs president sets his sights on the American competitiveness at home. The executive order on promoting competition in the American economy is a 72 um, initiative executive order that ranges over multiple sectors of the American economy, just the American system at large in labor markets, healthcare, transportation, agriculture, um, internet and technology, banking. The administration is making a concerted effort to kind of reimagine how the American system has been working. Um, some are comparing, even Joe Biden himself is comparing himself to Teddy Roosevelt and his antitrust years or FDR's focus on a new deal and how to make the American government work for its people. It's a really long executive order and we could get into the weeds and talk about all the pieces, but my first question for y'all being able to read it and, and highlight on some of these points, what are your big takeaways? What are the things that actually make you excited? Like all of it. I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, I think there's a ton in it that like are going to have, like, right. It depends on who you are. Right. And like what, yeah. you, like where you're, you are in life and, and what kind of like, you know, job you, you work in or what your um, like status of employment is um, positionally in the country. But I think that like specifically the two things that make me most excited um, have to do with healthcare um, and the internet service and technology are Kind of transportation too. Actually, I want to take that back. I think that the internet service and technology is, is a great thing, but I also think that more immediate, it offers some direction on um, healthcare and transportation. And and to be more specific, um, you know, it directs the Food and Drug Administration to work um, with states and tribes to safely import prescription drugs from Canada pursuant to the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003. So, you know, actually trying to um, actively implement laws that have already been passed for, you know, 18 years. Um, <laughs> we, pay, we spend quite a bit more, like hundreds of percents more on the same drugs here in America than mm -hmm. Canadians do in Canada. And they are right next door. Um, and we are very much aware of that, but yet have done nothing about it since this act was passed in 2003. Um, it also uh, directs the HHS to issue a comprehensive plan within 45 days to combat high prescription drug prices and price gouging. Um, and then one that's like really, really important, I think, is it directs HHS to consider issuing proposed rules within 120 days for allowing hearing aids to be sold over the counter. Um, and one of the things we're talking about offline and specific to hearing aids, I think that um, there's not many people, especially our age, who like have grandparents, aunt and uncles and stuff that don't know people who really struggle to afford these kinds of like everyday needs, such as a hearing aid. Um, mm -hmm. And the loss of your hearing, it can, can often be not to, you know, your own your own fault it's just a part of it could be because of the job you had your whole life or it could just be because of degenerative um hearing that's in your genes but i think that people when they think about like oh well why don't they just get a hearing aid if they need it that if you don't have insurance that requires going to the doctor that requires getting assigned to a specialist which is another doctor's appointment that costs money that you might not have and even if you do have insurance we all know that copays um are extremely are extremely high in this country and so are um 
deductibles. And so kind of cutting out all of those processes to be able to just go get a hearing aid if you have very clear hearing issues. Um, obviously, I think that you should see a doctor if you have like, you know, pain in your ears and stuff. But a lot of old people, you don't need a doctor to tell you you're losing your hearing. You just need something to do about it. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that that's a very tangible thing that's going to have a positive effect on people in our country. And then as far as uh, airlines goes, I don't know, as a traveler, uh, these two pieces are really exciting to me that it directs the Department of Transportation to consider issuing clear rules requiring the refund of fees when baggage is delayed or when service isn't actually provided, like when the plane's Wi-Fi or in-flight entertainment system is broken. Um, That it also directs the Department of Transportation to consider issuing rules that require baggage, change, and cancellation fees to be clearly disclosed to the customer. Um, As someone who twice in a year um, has booked a flight and then had to cancel those things and, and I'm sitting on, you know, like, $700 $700 in credits for airlines that did that, that had really unclear cancellation or change change policies um, at the time of booking. I just feel like we have so little power as consumers and a lot of the stuff that's in this executive order both is going to promote competition in our economy and therefore growth in our economy. But also I think it offers some really important protections for consumers. Sorry, that was long-winded, but I'm a little excited about some of this stuff. Well, speaking of competition, Torrent, something that kind of like piqued my interest about this executive order um, with internet service providers. I guess it's just not something I really realized, but I didn't realize that they make deals with landlords that specifically limit tenants choices of what Mm -hmm. internet service provider Mm -hmm. you can, you can pick. Like I know I only have two options where I live right now. And it's also because Idaho only has two options. That's not true though. There's a ton of options. There's really? a lot of, yeah, there's a, I mean, there's, I don't know if there's like a ton, ton, but there's, there's more than, I know that like up, up North, we have a lot more options than just like the big companies, Sparklight mm-hmm. and CenturyLink. And um, so this kind of, this kind of uh, uh, rule that they're kind of preventing can really help those small business internet providers. And that's um, a really big deal to me. Another one that I thought was really interesting was the mergers. Um, and kind of reminding our government agencies that, look, we have the power to go back and say, wait a second, that merger actually was not a good idea or a good decision and repeal that merger. And it can also stop other mergers from happening. I know Amazon has one or two right now that are trying to go through and whatnot. And Google, Apple has a couple. It's really about what I found really like overarching about this executive order is it's really about. Every step of the way asking, is this going to prevent competition in some way? Ask everyone involved is asking that question. The government is asking that question when they make these decisions. I do think something that you mentioned is very important here of this executive order is, again, very um, broad reaching and instructs agencies to do Y and departments to do X. Um, but it's important that you highlight it. It reminds a lot of our independent agencies that they do have the power to and encourages them. It uses that language a lot throughout um, the order. Essentially making it a little bit more secure when it comes to potential challenges down the road from um, these organizations or uh, other industries because um, the FTC is a independent governmental organization. It works opposite to, well, not opposite to, but it it works in tandem with the administration, right? So when the administration directly tells it to do something, it can be seen as an overreach of its executive power, as harming that um, organization's independence. 
And I, I do appreciate and think it's important that the administration recognize that work needs to be done in those places. And while they might not be able to directly do it, they can start setting a standard and, and putting some wording out there to say, here's the direction that America needs to be headed. And another thing that's really overarching about this is, is we've actually seen something like this before. It's, you know, it's notable that um, President Obama had an executive order mm -hmm. that was somewhat like this back in 2016. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't really have a ton of time to take effect before our former president took it all away, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what's interesting about this that's different than what Obama did is this one actually uh, targets specific things and makes specific suggestions on what agencies should do, not just overarching ideas of what they should do. And I think like to, to kind of the point of um, very specific direction towards agency is I think that's something that people like people don't take into account here is like can Congress, meaning, you know, the House and the Senate, they a lot of lobbying money is spent to to prevent them from passing legislation that would take that would make take these actions um, in a more broad and more sweeping, more enforceable way. Mm -hmm. However, I think that we forget, right, like that our agencies are, are run by cabinet members that are appointed um, and appointed by the president and then are run by career or, you know, career officials that work for our government and are, are good intended and are not are, cannot be lobbied and bought off by lobbyists. And therefore, um, they have a little bit more latitude and flexibility in their approach to these things and, and ability to enforce them at least, and this is unfortunate, right? At least for the time being that we are running those agencies and leading those agencies, because of course, if there is a different, um, if there's, is a different administration from a different party, they may not be pursuing the same exact things. Um, but I think that like one of the really interesting and, and, and good things that is being done by this administration through this executive order is Putting to the forefront the things that I think all of us are experiencing, right? Both Democrats and Republican alike know that our data is being so being being taken and um, and sold. That we have very little power when it comes to banks. That we have little power when it comes to these big corporations as consumers, and that we all kind of share in that frustration. That there is that we, there is a party that is trying to fight on their behalf. And also, what's really nice to see, you know, some bipartisanship specifically with like the antitrust the antitrust bill that just that just. Um, Past the House Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. um, and so like I feel like this is a place where like that bipartisanship can can possibly show its face in a really beneficial way for all Americans. Um, but I just think that it, it, it he's using his power of the presidency to write, bring issues to the surface that we don't spend enough time talking about, and also gives um, credit to our party for fighting on behalf of those things because we just spent you know four years with a part with an administration that didn't ever like openly discuss these things if it wasn't beneficial for them beneficial for them politically whereas mm -hmm. i think that some of these things aren't necessarily politically advantageous for 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 joe biden but are honest to goodness intentions from his administration to improve the lives lives of americans and consumers um in our economy yeah it's funny you mentioned that too, because that's actually one of my critiques about the specific executive order. I think this administration, just like you mentioned, is doing some really great work, but um, I'll call out the vice president here. Why not? Very similar to Kamala Harris when she was on the primary. There's so much work to be done that they are, I won't say they're overwhelmed because obviously they're doing it, but they're overwhelming the system, right? This is a 72 initiative order that does great things, but is so in the weeds that most people and most reactions are only focusing on um, the labor markets and the antitrust competitiveness piece, right? There's no conversation about the fact that this executive order 
uh, unilaterally is restoring net neutrality. That is major news. That is something that anyone who is thinking about internet, who is currently overwhelmed by all of the new plus streaming services that are popping up, that matters in understanding that broadband that un- and understanding that our internet cannot be parsecked out into, well, you're going to pay for this piece and this piece and this piece. It all has to be one continuous thing. And as we're seeing a lot of Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, all of these places taking their content and saying, nope, we're going to keep unilateral ownership over this, even though there are streaming services that already do the work that is needed. Um, that matters. But because it's tied into this conversation about banking, this conversation about um, the labor markets and non-compete clauses, it, it disintegrates and it disappears and you get stuck into the weeds like we do um, talking about it all. But the average American doesn't understand what's coming. I mean, you look no further than the child tax credit that is rolling out this week where millions of Americans are about to see deposits in their bank account because they have children, but because the administration packed it into so much, they are doing an aggressive effort to try to help explain what that even means. Well, but I, I don't know, like the message doesn't have to be every little thing. I think it just has to be something with a couple examples from it. Something like, like, look, government can work for you and look at what we're doing We've restored net neutrality. We've um, put hearing aids over the counter. You know, they can they can message like that and not use every single thing from it, just use what they might see as the most effective ones based off data and stuff. And that'll be very interesting to see upcoming, especially in the next presidential election. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that like uh, in addition to that, it also just like reiterates the point like that they made with um, – like going after people who evade tax, paying taxes, right, by wanting to invest money into the IRS to actually mm-hmm. go and um, after that money is similar to like what they're talking about with the prescription drugs from Canada, right? Like enforcing the laws on the books, like right, like we don't have to yeah. write a new policy, we don't have to write a new law, we have to actually enforce and and use the laws that exist already that people have fought for that are not that are not being used. Um, to, to improve the lives of Americans. And I think that that's like a really solid point. And then also to like what you said, Terrell, I think that another thing that it's, I, it might take a little more of like, um, like a policy wonk, like, you know, people like us who like are really obsessed with politics to, to, to tie these two together. But I also think that if you really, if you look at what's in this executive order and what they're directing some of these agencies to do, a lot of it could complement and ensure that the money that they're investing in this bipartisan infrastructure deal actually positively impacts the Americans and is not used in a corrupt in a corrupt manner. Um, and I think that like by kind of like, you know, walking and chewing gum at the same time, mm-hmm. they will have made this policy that we wish was a little bit bigger or this this legislation that we wish was a little bit bigger in investment, a more effective and go a little further. You actually just read my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue that if you are a traditional conservative, this um, executive order is a breath of fresh air, right? It's directing government governmental agencies to follow rules on the books. It's not creating any extra hurdles or any extra legislation. It's literally just saying we have antitrust bills that governments have not or uh, governmental agencies have not been following. Take some reinvestment into that. Look into this. It's also looking at wasteful spending. Um, my favorite thing on here, which is again a very small piece, um, for years the transportation side of things for um, train conductors is 
we give right of passage to um, freights, things, people carrying other stuff, not the passenger freights. And this executive order is actually reversing that, understanding that our our freight needs have changed. We're having more passenger trains and also kind of a nod to this administration's look at infrastructure and a want to expand our rail system. It's those types of things that, again, if we were in a normal political sphere and you were a conservative, you could lean into this and say, I actually support this because it's doing the work of limiting government to some sense and also not overtly bloating it. And in a Even way, though we know kind the of message like, is going to say the opposite. Right. But in, in a way, like to what you just said, also explaining and in highlighting the reason why um, like traveling by train is so like expensive and inefficient in our country because of the prioritization of uh, freights. And so I just mm-hmm. think that like, yeah, I just like am really impressed by this administration's ability to kind of play the piano, the organ and the guitar at the same time in a tune <laughs> that doesn't sound offbeat, you know, like, right, I, I just think that it's, I think that it's, um, I just think that it's a really good move. And it's things like these that like sometimes remind me, like, we are talking about an administration, a president who like, this man knows what he's talking about when it comes to the United States government. And it's one of those benefits, right? Like we don't love it all the time. One of those benefits of having a leader who has actually been in government for 50 years. It understands the mechanisms of power and governing. I was going to say, speak for yourself. I personally support those type of leaders, but I digress. Well, we know that if you can be a contrarian to the point I make, that you'll be happy to step up to the <laughs> to the challenge. I mean, if you need me to go up to bat, ask no further. <laughs> no, I think I... I, coat. <laughs> I echo your words, Torrance. Like, I've just been very impressed by what this administration has done all at once Mm -hmm. playing multiple instruments at once all of that and i mean at the same time uh we're ending a 20-year war you know that has yeah hasn't gone well so far ending the war i mean we're almost out of it i mean yes but the region's still a crippling disaster that we have to own to some extent i mean at some point at some point we had to get out yeah so you know i I'm I'm okay with that, I think. I mean, us coming out. I'm not, yeah. yeah. I'm not okay. I don't know. You're you're okay with the unrest, <laughs> is that what you're trying to say? No. <laughs> um, no, but I also don't know if it's like obviously I know that we have caused a lot of things militarily that aren't mm. good, but it's also you know, I don't think it was really our responsibility to go in there in the first place and make it worse. Also completely agree. So anyways, um, but I'm just I don't know, like this, this administration is, is taking a very proactive approach and doing a lot of different things. And this executive order is just another example of that. And I have been pretty happy um, with some of the stuff they have taken, obviously, like, like, you know, nobody's perfect. And there's always going to be criticisms here or there or whatnot. But, but um, I mean, this administration's already done a lot and they're shooting for so much more. Mm-hmm. And this is part of that. And I'm just really looking forward to see what else they're able to do. A really great piece of whether this executive order was necessary, if there needs to be movement forward, did did the administration make the right call, right? Um, you look no further than our great um, White House press secretary who said, and I quote, roughly half of private sector businesses require at least 
some employees to enter non-compete agreements, effectively over 30 million people. This affects construction workers, hotel workers, many blue collar jobs, not just high level executives. If someone offers you a better job, you should be able to take it. And, and to that piece of competitiveness to the American consumer, um, the American economy development, that last piece of if you're offered something better, you should have the option to do so, I think is really impactful and important to understand why um, this specific executive order is amazing and useful. I mean, I said multiple times in our group chat that it made me wet. So <laughs> I, think, I think, I mean, in the economics of this makes sense to me and I see what they're trying to do, what they're basically making, they're making the argument that, look, like right now, a lot of the good jobs are controlled by a few large firms. Mm -hmm. And we've been in this experiment for, for a long time now. And what that does is it is it gives less power to us as consumers and even employees and whatnot. But by creating a more competitive environment, consumers can have a lot more power, not only to choose, but to also uh, maybe have a company that offers what they do want at the end of the day, instead of all these few large firms taking up that space already and, and actively um, going against the spirit of competition. Like you said, capitalism is not capitalism if there's no competition. That's just exploitation. I believe that's what Joe Biden said. Um, you know, so. Right. And it's also like speaks to like this like altruistic um, like nature of capitalism that like say, you know, more conservatives and pro-business people are, you know, pro I don't want to say this wrong because we're, we're obviously as Democrats, we're pro-business, right? But pro-big business, like because the Chamber of Commerce, you know, issued saying that like big agencies and companies play a big role in the growth of smaller companies. I'm like, yeah, that is under the altruistic framing of these big companies are purchasing from small companies, right? Their supplies, their services mm -hmm. from small companies that might might charge a little bit more, right? Because they're a smaller company. Yeah. That's not happening. That's B that's BS. That's not honest, and once again, you know, a, a bad faith argument from our good friends on the right. Yeah, the Chamber of Commerce has kind of proven itself here a little bit to uh, have a very narrow view of how the economy works. Um, yeah, they make money, we don't. That is their view. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, the view is big business is good, small business. Eh. Well, you also, again, context <laughs> matters here. You do have to be thoughtful of and consider that the Chamber of Commerce is made up of a lot of companies that are being targeted by this. So rightfully so, they're going to come out and say, this is an inappropriate step by the administration because their their bottom line is at issue. Their, their um, viability is at issue here of, I mean, a lot of um, um, economists and like economy wonks are looking at Amazon and Apple of what impact this might have on them because they own so many different parts of a broader organization that is making them less competitive. Um, so while I might not agree with what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said, it's important to know that well, they're just absolutely. doing their job. Yeah, no, and it, it makes sense. It's just kind of like, okay, when you see their quotes. I don't know, though, like, like taking taking some of the mergers that Apple has made away doesn't destroy Apple though. 
it just it maybe they don't make as much profit than before, but Apple is one of the richest companies that in the world. Mm-hmm. In the world, it's like it's over a trillion dollars. I, it might be close to two. I don't even know. I haven't looked at their stock or anything, but that's what they're valued at. And they historically have an incredible amount of money, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of cash that they can use on hand. Like these companies, obviously I get that they're scared or whatnot, but how much is enough? The answer to them is it's never enough, but, right. but like something like this isn't going to destroy yeah. them. It's not going to destroy them. Exactly. And, 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 how well has that gone for us as a consumer, right? Oh, like we've had we've had a similar product circulated, right? I'm an Apple. I I, I am recording this on a MacBook Air. Oof. I have just gotten a brand new iPhone 12 because mine was stolen, not because I wanted to spend the money on that damn thing. But that's <laughs> besides the point, right? But like how it has continuously got more expensive. It has evolved around the same similar size, similar like um pieces right like the 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 software and technology has changed a little bit right but like largely very similar makeup of the phone for over a decade and it just keeps getting more expensive i mean these phones now cost the equivalent like literally only like a hundred dollars less than the brand new macbook air i bought the brand new macbook air i bought it's insane like we're not winning and that is the issue like that's the issue that like a lot of us young people have with capitalism period right is that like in an altruistic sense the uh capitalism as a um exploitation it's completely (laughs) exploitative as from from everything from the consumer to the employee right like we're no one's winning there and i just think that it gets misconstrued often as us wanting to be like you know more socialist but that's not it it's that this the system that you've created that is supposed to work to all of our advantage if it works in an altruistic sense absolutely does not and everyone wants us just to ignore that and be happy that's not the case and we have to continue to call it out and as a quick fact check, as of March 15th, 2021, Apple's market cap has increased to $2.08 trillion. There it is. Yeah. yeah. They are the most yeah. valued company, so like, I believe, in the world. They are. Uh, in the world. Yeah, they are. If they were to sell their entire company. And what are they doing company, with that? If they were to sell their entire company right now, they would make up, I want to say, most of the um, student loan debt in America. These companies just, yeah, yeah, they're just not, they're not doing anything to actually, um, again, like, like what, what's the point of like this kind of capitalism and economy is right to support a society and a state and, and the society that we want to live in. And they just don't do that. So mm-hmm. they create a, they, they are great. And we, I think that I obviously like enjoy the products that I get, but they often create more issues than they ever solve. When Jeff Bezos makes 1.2 billion a day, I think you can, I think you can justifiably say that. There's a lack of competition. We oh, haven't yeah, and seen pays no taxes either. We haven't <laughs> seen that level of um, wealth collection, if you will, in America since uh, the Teddy Roosevelt years, the Roaring Twenties, as people remember, when Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, those type of names owned everything and just kept acquiring money. And we've all seen, well, maybe not because civics always fails, but. For some, we know how that story turned out. We know right. why Ted, mm-hmm. why Theodore Roosevelt stepped in and passed antitrust legislation because at a certain point the U.S. was not succeeding. It was just the people in the the small portion of people who were hoarding and collecting that wealth. And we've now twice over experienced those same people, those companies, J.P. Morgan, these banks who have tanked our economy twice into huge depressions and recessions. 
once in the 20s, and now again in the early in the 2000s. So we know what they will do is tank our economy. We know what they won't do is grow it to the point of, of people, average people benefiting from it. And that's why this executive order is a big deal in what they do in the future is a big deal. So that doesn't happen again. Torrance, take us on a tangent. Uh, mine's a really positive tangent today. That's a first. Uh, I wanna sh- yeah, I want to <laughs> shout out to um, I want to shout out to both the you know the Emmys. I want to shout out to um, Pose as a show, but a very very big shout out and congratulations to MJ Rodriguez for being the first transgender actress uh, to be nominated for a, a lead role Emmy. Um, she was nominated for Best Actress in um, a Lead Role in a Drama Series today, and I just think that that is a huge step forward. And kind of to a broader point, I really want to, after Pose's really, really successful three-run, a uh, three-season run, congratulations to that cast, congratulations to the creators, congratulations uh, to us um, for having been lucky enough to experience that show, because I think that it truly uh, trailblazed a um, movement for transgender rights and, to, and for people to be educated and understand transgender people in a way that we hadn't been able to before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that like we have so much to thank that show for and to thank the creators, writers, and, and actors um, who, who participated in that project. And um, I'm extremely grateful. But again, a huge, huge, huge congrats to MJ Rodriguez on this nomination. Uh, Caleb, can you take us on a tangent? Mine is just annoyance with media narratives, which Ooh. Terrell and I actually kind of talked about last week, mm-hmm. um, specifically with Kamala Harris. But this one's actually about Joe Biden this time. Um, oh, you did share that article. I did, yeah. So so what Terrell's talking about is basically the New York Times had an article a couple days ago that labeled Joe Biden as boring. and I, to say the least, don't agree with that. I <laughs> I think it's very easy for people who have to watch the same speech um, multiple times a day to be like really boring because I, I mean, I probably wouldn't be able to pay attention that much. But I think that like, like the stuff that Joe Biden is outlining in plans and whatnot, like Joe Biden has good speeches and then he also has speeches that maybe some of us would label boring but the stuff that he is outlining is like super not boring to me like so far like i was kind of touching on earlier and with with this executive order he's doing a lot of stuff that impacts everyday americans big decisions that honestly impact the direction of where the country is going but and this is where my annoyance comes in, but the media thinks he's boring because I don't know. He's not Trump. <laughs> like, like, like Trump had these rambling crazy. He could say anything moments and Joe Biden is not like that, but he's still making massive decisions for the country. But because he's not crazy, <laughs> I mean, he's boring. I, I don't know. I just think it's, I just think it, it, it further shows it further shows that there's still not a lot of lessons that have been learned from the Trump era in that, in that I think media could take what Biden is doing and make it compelling, but it's not interesting to them. So it doesn't matter, even though it matters to so many Americans, what he's doing and what the message is. Plus repetition is key in political messaging too. I mean, 
That's you got to say it across the country multiple different ways. Or in the same speech multiple times because you forget at Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and if like if you would allow me to jump on your tangent just a little bit because jump. I, I like totally agree with this because I think that like we often forget media, although like obviously we are pro journalism, we think that, you know, the news plays an important role in our in our society. However, like they're human, they're also businesses, and there is a point to be made about like how there was a huge increase in, in traffic to, to, to news websites, increase in viewership on, on news because of the Trump era presidency. Um, and we cannot normalize that kind of um, sensationalistic reporting uh, as a norm. I think that yeah. it was, you know, like it was it was an issue. It was both like an issue, but also like a response to a very unorthodox, very... Um, you know, crazy man who was occupying the White House. But like, we can't go back and call, we cannot call a veteran politician who knows what he's doing, who is clear eyed in his, in his vision, who is, is pursuing the policy and the leadership of that, of that vision. Um, honestly, boring because he's not lying and saying something sensationalistic at every single time he steps up to a mic. Quite frankly, we should be happy that it's a, and take a, uh, you know, a sigh of relief that we're having some reprieve, reprieve, excuse me, from insanity and QAnon conspiracy theories. But, you know, we digress. <laughs> yeah. Like media can make what Joe Biden is saying and doing interesting, but that doesn't get them the ratings that Trump did. Oh, nothing will get you the ratings that Trump did. Like Every that, time you watched it, you wonder if he would either say something that was just so off the wall, you thought for sure he would actually face accountability or have a stroke. So, yeah. Yeah, but but you know, media Joe Biden's wanting... too healthy. First off, so we don't <laughs> have to worry about that. And even though he has a stutter, he's more understandable than Trump ever was. I mean, media should have known that that the yeah. era of Trump for them was not a sustainable era. Like, it's just not going to last forever. Like, I don't know. It's just nor it's should they want it to. You know, we. I don't. I don't want it to. But it's it's just frustrating to continue to see these like these narratives being pushed on to, to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris um, from our conversation last week um, that are just so <laughs> maybe accurate for the people specifically reporting on him, but not for, I would argue, everyday Americans that need to hear that information. I would echo that. Take us on a tangent, Terrell. It's like, y'all can ask each other, but don't ask me. I see how it is. <laughs> My tangent is this group. Um, Get out of here. (laughs) I mean, I could go on one, but we might end up separating shows and that'd be too much chaos. And I ain't gonna do that. He is so dramatic, y'all. He is incredibly dramatic. (laughs) It's because you're here. The (laughs) drama. The drama. Um, you guys are very lucky this is a podcast and not, not a, a visual show, seeing what Caleb just did with that drama thing. Yeah, no, 100%. It might be a visual show. I, half of me went straight after that. Um, <laughs> um, I don't, I don't have a good tangent. I don't, I've been so, maybe my tangent is just my life, I guess. I've been so just going through the motions and in the flow that I have nothing to be frustrated about. That's I, great. No, it's not. <laughs> Why? I mean, it's hard to be triggered about something specific when you're triggered about most things. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> the life of a black man. <laughs> You know, I yeah. mean, right? Like the life that, you of know, a black man. But angry it, and unnerved. I. Facts. If that's a black man in America, that's a black man in America. Mm-hmm, I know my Baldwin. 
um but like it's not the fact it's not the fact that i'm not frustrated in things it's more so the fact that life is like since we've reopened there's just no there's there's nothing there's not nothing i don't know how to word what i'm thinking it's just a reminder of we had the opportunity to change a lot of things and we changed nothing people are back out they're going to the same places, doing the same things. Like there was this anticipation and so much hype of what a new normal could look like, how higher ed institutions could revolutionize and enter the modern era, how people could interact with one another again. And human nature is one of frustration and continuity. The minute things were normal, we just went back to it. And I think for me, I don't have a tangent, not because there are things I'm frustrated with, but because I'm starting to fall into that, right? I'm starting to just wake up in the morning, get ready, go to work, sit at my desk, do the things, listen to the conversations that are the exact same conversations we had March of 2020 when we could have planned all this stuff earlier. Um, finish those conversations, come home, rinse and repeat. And it's that monotony that I'm just, I'm here, I'm alive. But my my normal tangent would be like, oh, this sports thing or Oh, this thing, but because I've become so monotonous, I don't have any tangents right now. Or they could just follow your Twitter. Which one? <laughs> That's very interesting, actually, Trell. I kind of I feel that actually. I haven't gone on any Twitter rants recently. No, you haven't said anything on Twitter about sports recently. Okay, I'm sure I I'm sure I reshared some stuff. That's <laughs> fine, but I haven't gone on any rants about sports. The what last thing I y'all know his y'all know his Twitter handle. Go check him out. Fact check that no. shit. The know. last thing I no, they are they're in the lead, but they also last game. The last thing I posted on Twitter related to sports was the fact that Mr. LeBron James came out and said that he sees himself retiring with the Lakers in L.A. Yeah, I in saw L.A. <laughs> and I just want to point out that's what he said about Cleveland the year before he left to go to Miami. The exact, the exact same quote, the exact same premise. A year before his player option is open, he did the exact same thing, and that's all I have to say. Just you off so much. It isn't that he. Oh, he can't stand him. I swear, he cannot stand. But it's not. It wasn't even that he pissed me off. It was just everyone's like, "Oh my god, he's going to be a Laker forever," and I was like, "Don't be dumb like the Cavs were." Me like, "Oh my god, he's going to do all the great things." He might simply saying. He do be lying. He do. <laughs> it's a fucking fact. It's a fact. So just be aware. You might be getting lied to right now. <laughs> if they don't win a championship next this. year, he's going to leave. No, don't cut it. This is fantastic. I think the love the listeners will love no, it. No, right? And now he put me on a tangent because I, I can argue about it. We found it. We found it. We knew it was in there. But if they don't <laughs> if they don't win a championship, championship next year, he's going to leave. That's just how that is. That's how he is. He's very self-centered. He ain't no Michael. The loyalty ain't there. Okay, ain't there. But Michael did leave and go play for um, the Wizards. Well, that talking and he went into baseball. (laughs) I just swung a bat, guys. Oh, swung something. We need to get our YouTube channel up. No, we don't. (laughs) No one needs to see y'all outside of the voices and whatever they imagine in their face. That's probably true. But the option is not. 
No, it's not. We want to give consumers options just like this executive order does. I'm unilaterally saying no. They don't <laughs> let need us know. Option. Let us know in the comments, friends. Let us know. What comments? What comments are they posting on? Asking for uh, Well, that's been our show. <laughs> <laughs> Asking for a friend. Where are these comments that they are posting on? I'm Caleb. <laughs> I'm Torrance. And I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.